Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued exhorting them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for the book we have in our lap, Scripture, and the record of the first sermon and growth of the church as hearts were cut by the conviction of your spirit and the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you'd bless us on this day, this Sunday morning, here in North Carolina. Lord, may you pause whatever would be a distraction to us or whatever would need to take lower precedent than our time with you and what you have in store. Thank you for a church. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your spirits moving and teaching. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Now, if you were to travel abroad, I'm not so sure we don't have travelers within the congregation that have seen things and gone places. I like to do that. I haven't had the opportunity to leave the country, but a number of times in only to two different places. But to travel abroad, let's say the capital of, a, of a, another nation, uh, Moscow or Berlin or Rio de Janeiro or, uh, I don't know, Rome or Paris, you'd have to go some distance and you'd have to overcome a language barrier. You'd have to adapt to a culture that you are a foreigner to. There's a lot that you don't know about that in order to get the most out of that visit, you'd have to do a lot of work. Or you could hire a guide. Sometimes the, some of the best money on a trip is spent on a guide. I would like to say that the better fish my son caught this vacation were because of this guide. They were not. It was a professional guide. In the field of journalism or photography, traveling abroad to take pictures, you would, you would try. The position that you're looking for is called a fixer. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. Uh, if you like to watch any of these shows where they travel all over the place and then eat everything in sight. Usually, when they land, they meet a fixer. The fixer knows all the people, all the places, where you, if you're going to Cairo, you may be able to get close to the pyramids in a bus full of people. The fixer would allow you to get inside the pyramids. This is one of those passages where we're going to need a fixer because we've got to acknowledge that a sermon that it only took us about three minutes to read that resulted in the salvation of 3,000 souls contains quite a bit of insider information. I, I, I didn't hear anyone after that interrupt and say, what shall we do? As happened here when Peter had said that last word. But what we've got is a case of a sermon that springs up from three years' worth of ministry with Jesus, a number of weeks' worth of absence, and a horrific event that everyone in the whole town witnessed in the form of a crucifixion. 
When he says this Jesus, they know who he's talking about. When he talks about David the king, they probably sang some of those poems in recent time in their synagogue. There's so much about what goes on in this little passage that we could spend weeks on it, uncovering each of the little pieces and spreading the the psalms out on the table and showing what Psalm 16 means and Psalm 110 means and how this is connected to that. We could do that, but I think there would be something, again, lost in translation if we take a three-minute sermon and do it in three weeks. We'll do it all today, and we'll move on. But what I hope to do is simplify and then point in different directions, like this is a place, and it's well worth your stop. But for today, we're going to keep moving. Some of the best trips are the ones that aren't planned where you have time, where you can stop, and you find something that other people don't know about. Those are the things that the fixers know, but the tourists don't, right? If you've traveled, you probably don't have much to say about the restaurant that's for the tourist because it's really American food (laughs) called something else, and it's just not the same. So to know Greek, to know Hebrew, to know cultural studies will make this sermon in black and white come to color. But for us today... We're going to look at it with, again, those two questions. What are we supposed to understand and how are we supposed to obey? And then bring some of that into here and now that was there and then. But what I want to do is think of this as an examination of another sermon. This sermon is about a sermon. Peter's sermon, which happens to be the first Christian sermon. This is the first sermon that had to do with a gospel presentation. Part of some of this came up yesterday in a gospel presentation in the funeral service. What we'll do is examine the components of it. There's actually three arguments within this sermon. Does that surprise you? Peter's first sermon had three points. It actually had a poem, too. There's more than one poem. Those were psalms. They were meant to be sung, but it's poetry. He had illustrations here. He had support material here. This is much like the sermons that we preach today. It's just there was a lot going on that day where it could get done in three minutes. And when we're doing this, we're kind of teaching where Peter was very much preaching. There's a difference between the two, even though it may be slight. Each argument or point here are easy to identify. Peter addresses his audience at each break. The first one there in verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. It changes a bit each time that he addresses his audience. But let me give you point number one here. And if you had a stack of 12 commentaries on a desk for Acts, you may have 12 different versions of how these points would be named. And that's okay because Peter didn't give us his points. He didn't say point number one. And then write this down, and then I'll give you point number two. He also, we don't see that he gave an invitation. Now, there was an invitation, believe the gospel, and people believe, but there wasn't an aisle and there wasn't an organ. So many of this is different, but so much of it's the same. He begins by arguing negatively that the apostles could not be drunk. That seems to 
initiate the sermon. It's Pentecost. Last week you heard of how the Spirit fell. It, it, it was uh, indicated by a, a, a mighty rushing wind, and then tongues of fire began to display on the tops of these people's heads who'd been with Jesus. Ever heard anyone refer to flames as licking something? That's where those tongues come from. A fire looks as if it has tongues. What's unique here is that the tongues were split. The King James may use the word cloven, right? Where else do we see fire in the Old Testament? You see fire and a flaming sword stay out of the garden. Then you see a fire as a burning bush. Then you see fire on Mount Sinai. And a lot of times between there, you see fire over the tabernacle at night, the cloud during the day. But fire was always to symbolize the presence of God, right? And it was always in one place. And now you've got it split over those who the Spirit indwells. The fire of God is now present in his apostles and his disciples, and it's spreading. No longer do you go to the base of a mountain or to the temple or the Holy of Holies. The Spirit comes to dwell within you as you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening, and people don't know what to do with it. They're hearing in their language something that's spoken in Aramaic. That's... That's some Rosetta Stone that you speak, say, in English, and you have someone who speaks Portuguese, and somewhere in the airwaves, the translation is done from your mouth to their ears. They hear one language, you've spoken another. That's what was going on here. And to some, it just looked like chaos. And they said, they're drunk. And this is where Peter says, you couldn't be more wrong And let me explain to you what is happening. And he goes straight to Scripture, the prophet of Joel, and begins to explain it. So let's look at this. And and the point that I'm going to call his first point, this is my title of Peter's opening point. We knew this was coming, or we should have known this was coming, because it's been written in prophecy for a very long time. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, addressed them, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. That, that's, how, that's how you start a sermon. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And you might hear a lot of people say, see, we told you that wine in the Bible is watered down. It took a lot of it to get really drunk. It, it was different. I hate to break it to you, but we've got really good evidence that their wine was like any wine. But it's just they had a... They knew better what to do with it than Americans. They didn't start drinking until later. Where in America, this might... Only 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, depending on what they were drinking. Sometimes you can just get in the weeds with that kind of stuff. What... Peter is saying is that's not it and that wouldn't even make sense what you're seeing what this is is what Joel said and this is his first instance of a this is that and it's a great way of interpreting prophecy this this is a fulfillment this that you're seeing going on is that which was said by someone long ago that's his first he's going to do it at least twice here 
In the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That's what's happening. Go down to verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here's his first, this is that. This is the most simplistic of his points, but it's his opening point. And he puts to bed the idea that this is a disaster and locks it into fulfilled scripture. Point number two. God has revealed your Messiah. His next point is that Messiah from the Old Testament is this Jesus from Nazareth. That is this. Men of Israel hear these words, and this is the, the main thrust of the whole sermon. Jesus of Nazareth, common name and a common location, but in this context, they all know who he's talking about. A man attested... If you go a little further, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up. And then verse 24, God raised him up. You might want to circle, attested, delivered, and raised. Those are the operative words in Peter's argument that this Jesus is that Messiah. Attested. The word test is there in attested. Uh, You could use the word certified. You could use the word approved, uh, qualified. All of them in a roundabout way would mean the same thing. I like certified. He's a certified Messiah, the certified Messiah. By who? By Jesus, or by God, rather. How? By mighty works, wonders, and signs. We talked about this in John's gospel. All of those could be called miracles, but the signs were specific in that what was done was pointing to something. It's not just that he's raising someone from the dead. He's saying, No one can raise someone from the dead except the one God sent from heaven. I'm the Messiah because I raised someone from the dead. The ultimate one was his raising from the dead, but they're all pointing to the fact that he was who he said he was. So this all has to do with authority. My favorite part of it all is this, which you yourselves know. You saw the miracles. And you know that you couldn't account for those miracles any other way than that this man was unique. No man can do this stuff. It's different if you've got somebody saying, well, you know, you heard that guy talk about that whatever, that, that, that big fish. But that's just some guy that you don't even know. Peter is able to say to this group of people, you know my point is valid because you saw the miracles yourselves. That's what makes this message more powerful. God is not in the business of doing miracles today like he was then for the purpose of signs. But if you spend any time with the Lord, don't you agree that there's some things that you just can't account for by coincidence? And they're used as means of encouraging you that he is who he said he was. Then there's the word delivered, where he says this man, Jesus, who's attested, proven, certified by God through the miracles that he did, he was delivered up by God to be killed by you. Now, there's a whole sermon wrapped up in this because those sound contradictory. God's going to hand him over, but then he's going to charge these men who kill him as responsible and guilty for his death. Delivered up by the plans of God, but killed by wicked men. Now, 
you can split a whole church over the difference between sovereignty and human responsibility. Is God in charge? Sounds like it. He handed him over. Is, are humans responsible for their actions? Sounds like it because they're wicked and guilty. And some churches, maybe some pulpits, sound as if the distance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are like way in different places of the Bible. And some preachers may really hit hard the sovereignty part. And you wonder if there's any of that human responsibility anywhere to be found. On the other side of it, they'll hit that human responsibility real hard as if God just left it up to you. As, and, and it's really hard to find. This is not just you know somewhere found in the same state in the Bible or the same county or the same town or the same neighborhood or the same street. They're next door neighbors. Look at that verse again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And that's how you can say that Jesus died for your sins before the foundations of the world, but you must confess, repent, and believe in your heart, and you will be saved. It's your responsibility, but it's God's business. They're both in the Bible. They're both true. They sound like they contradict, but we call it a mystery. And it requires faith to be able to swallow it. Then there's the word raised. He's alive. He was dead. Now he's alive. And that's a big deal because it has to do with these prophecies that talk about a qualification of the Messiah is not only that he not... Well, he does die, but the qualification is he doesn't stay dead. We'll get to that in a minute. And he's not dead here, Peter says, because it's not possible that he stay dead. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This was part of yesterday's message as well. But let me give you two reasons why staying dead for Jesus wasn't possible. One, because it was part of God's plan. We learned that in verse 23. It was God's choice, though it involved wicked hands of lawless men. But the, Peter seems to, seems to emphasize this second point, that death had no claim against Jesus. Speaking in, in medical terms here, pangs of death. The only other times in the Scripture pangs are mentioned, it has to do with birth pangs. Makes sense that that's the way he's talking here. And the idea being a sinner owes death his life. If you were to personify death, we, we think of that, don't we? Aren't all the movies, Grim Reaper, right? Um, if you thought of it in those terms, the sinner owes death his life by virtue of God's promise way back in the Garden of Eden to punish sin with death. But in this case, Jesus has not sinned. So Jesus owes death nothing. Death can't come collecting. And at a certain point, the grave couldn't hold him any longer. Morning of the third day, he is alive. And I could ask the question, what does it mean to you that Jesus couldn't stay dead? That's a huge point. That almost revolutionized my 
explanation of the gospel in a gospel presentation. Jesus couldn't stay dead. And boy, wasn't it handy on a day like yesterday. If Jesus can't stay dead, then those that belong to him can't stay dead either. So yesterday was a temporary goodbye to Pastor Ross. We will see him again. Not because of anything Pastor Ross did, but because of what has already been done by Jesus for him through what he did on the cross. And because sin is paid for and death has no claim and can't come collecting, this is just a temporary goodbye. He's in the presence of the Lord. And comforting is a poor word to use for a truth like that. It's everything. So he goes on to pick up that previous point. Peter quoting King David to say, For David says concerning him, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He is saying David's dead. Jesus is alive. David can't be talking about himself. The Messiah that David spoke of is not his heir. It's his Lord. That's his next point. So point number one was we should have seen this coming. Point number two, God has revealed his Messiah. It's this Jesus of Nazareth. Point number three is you know him as Jesus. He keeps saying this Jesus, but that's his final words in the last portion of the sermon itself. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Messiah is revealed, and you know him as Jesus. So when you look at verse 29, here you see that third address of his audience, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. All the buses would stop at the tomb of David and show all the little children where his remains lie in rest. This was something that they all knew. Even though they knew their active prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, he brings this up just to make the obvious point David is dead so he's not speaking of himself. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Again, is one of the powerful lines in this sermon. Not only were you here for his miracles, not only were you there when he died, you have seen him since, and he's alive. You're all witnesses of these things. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, which is his referring to Jesus' ascension to heaven... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's another repetition of the this is that. So if we're tracking with what Peter's using, and we're going through this fast, we're blowing by these places we want to stop and, and figure this out. But Peter's point so far regarding David is one, David said the Messiah would not stay dead. He would not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David stayed dead, remains dead, died long ago, hundreds of years ago at this point. Jesus died, but Jesus is not dead. He's alive. 
and he is a descendant of David genealogically. So he's a candidate, but he's the best runner-up for the position. Not runner-up, that's the wrong way to put that. Because he's alive from the dead. And then number two, David calls the Messiah Lord who sits at the right hand of God and pours out the Holy Spirit. David never ascended to heaven. Jesus ascended to heaven. So when you add the two of those together, you you get to his conclusion in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God, Jehovah, has made him, Jesus, both Lord, he's at his right hand, and Christ, which is the Messiah. And you know him as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is like a court case, open and shut. And we could spend time, I'd love for you to each to sit under a master professor at seminary and unroll the whole story. But what he's told us is Jesus is the Christ of Psalm 16 and Lord of 110. This Jesus is that Messiah. Now, I don't know how to take the situation on Pentecost with enough people to have 3,000 souls within earshot of Peter's voice. But the best way I know how to summarize this and maybe with emphasis such that we could get the point like they did, it's as if Peter said, You know the promises. Now you know his name. You've been waiting forever. It's not like you don't know who to expect. But here he is. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's been the man all along. You killed him, but now he's alive. That's a powerful conclusion to a sermon. And if we look to see what happened, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter said, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Doesn't always happen that way. 20 years worth of preaching ministry. (laughs) You get done. It's not often. What do we do? But it happened on this day. And it was the result of their having been cut to the heart. Peter tells them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for forgiveness. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's all there. I want to take a closer look at what happened, though. Luke is writing. He's a doctor. He tells us that they were cut. How many of you like it when you get cut? I don't think this is an accident cut. I think this is a surgical cut. This is the doctor speaking. How many of you like surgery? I don't like surgery. I'm glad that for the ones I've had, I was out. I've had procedures done where I was not out, but I was numbed. I don't like those. Cutting is an unpleasant experience in the, at the very least. This says they were cut 
almost in a way reminiscent of what we would see in Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword capable of a distinction between joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. By that next verse, you're laid open, bare, naked in front of the God to whom you must give an account. His word has operated on you. That's what's happened here. Says, though, that they were cut to the heart. That'd be the seat of the emotions, the center of your being. If you're trying to convince someone that you really believe something deep down, it's a conviction of yours. Do you say, I believe it with all my head, or do you say, I believe it with all my heart? Believe it with all my heart. This is where they're cut. And what this means, given the context, I don't think it needs to be any more complicated, though you might could make the case, but it means at least two things. One, cut to the heart meant that these folks listening acknowledged that what was said about Jesus was true. You don't get cut to the heart by a man proclaiming the truth of Christ unless you acknowledge it. It has dawned on you. This is truth. This room is full of people who either have had problems, are going to have problems, or are in the middle of a problem. And there are times in your life, especially by the time you reach middle age, where people that are close to you get bad news. And when you hear the bad news to start with at a point, sometimes your first instinct is to say, no, that, that, that can't be. And then you listen to the doctor and he makes his case or you look at an x-ray. And you usually feel it before you think it. This is true. They're acknowledging here that what was said about Jesus was true. And then the worst of it all is they're acknowledging that what was said about them was true. That's the second point. That that really was the Son of God and we really did nail him to a cross. And that's why they say, what do we do? What in the world do we do now? Now, if we took a time-out point here, because I think if we're applying this to here and now, if, if, if we're, if we're going to apply some of this wasness to isness, who's responsible for that response? Where does cut to the heart come from? Because I've, I've done lots of sermons, but I've never had people shout, what do we do? Well, it's not the same as this. I acknowledge that, but... I have to say that I feel better going home when it seems there was a, a, a response to the message. Where do you get that? If, if the heart is moved, the mind is moved, where does that come from? Because what I've seen in my experience over the years is, uh, is that a church can get mixed up in trying to figure out what's most important. What's most important in this passage, that Peter told the truth or that hearts were cut? Now, hearts need to be cut because that's how they get to heaven. But they can't be cut without the truth. And some might have a big deal with the 3,000 souls. This was, a, this was a good message, Peter. Should we let our attention 
of the wonder of this and the cutting of hearts and the moving of the Spirit be contributed back to the voice of the man delivering the truth? Is it the pastor's job? Is it the evangelist's job? I've always wondered about the evangelist. My daddy thought he wanted to be an evangelist. That was his degree. He sent out like a thousand letters or so after his graduation. He got one back. So he became a pastor instead. And 30 years worth of ministry changed a lot of lives. The evangelist is like a hitman. You know, he can go in, say stuff the pastor never could, get in real big trouble. He leaves. And whatever happened, the people can always go back and say, boy, wasn't that good. Do that. Like, I want to keep my job. Because there's a difference between the truth being told and the truth is what cuts the heart. The word of God from Hebrews 4.12. Or is it the stepping on the toes? Or just the agitating things that some of these guys can do. And that's what is felt. And that's what's appreciated. Whole ministries can be built on the goal of heart cutting. And get into goofy land very quick. Because there's no amount of things that we could try or do with music or rhetoric or programs to try to get hearts cut. Or we can do what Peter did and just tell the truth and see what happens. There's a big difference between that. And you always need to watch at what's being targeted when a conversation takes place. A salesman, the good ones, will usually go after your heart. You'd look good in that car. In fact, I think your friends would want to ride in that car with you. Right? Now, that's speaking to the heart, hoping that the brain makes the decision to cut the check. Now, what if you went for the brain first? You know, this car has a horrible safety rating. It's very expensive. It's not practical. And you're not going to get any attention because you still look the way you do. The car looks like it does. That's speaking to the mind. Right? And when we're looking at the scriptures, Peter does no manipulation here. There's no cleverness. He's just telling them what happened. It's only the truth. But the truth blows the walls out of the emotions when the truth comes home. Beware of those that will speak to your heart to get to your mind. That is called manipulation. One of the best in the world in recent history who could do this took a nation full of smart people and started a world war. Examine what he said. He spoke to the heart. He fired them up. And without thinking through what they were doing, the world's never been the same. So what do we do? That's what they said. Peter tells them simply, repent and be baptized. Now, it's another sermon, and it's a well-known piece of systematic theology that there is nothing required of salvation other than faith, which is a gift from God to start with. The best person to ask about this when you get to glory is the thief on the cross. 
who was never baptized. It's not required, but it's necessary as part of the process. And you do it out of obedience to God's command. We'll be looking at this and say a bit more about it next week where people will confess Jesus as their Lord and will baptize them. And you should be here to see it. That's the whole point, that they confess in front of others, this is what I believe. My heart has been cut. I believe what is said about Jesus, and I believe what the Bible says about me. I'm lost, and he died in my place. It's part of the process, but the repentance, the repentance here, that's the hard part. It always is. And I think it's the repentance that keeps more people out of heaven than anything else. The repentance is saying, I'm not qualified to run my own life. My creator's qualified to run my life, to say what's right, to say what's wrong. Not me, the Lord. He made me. He's right. I'm prone to be wrong. It's going to be difficult to stand in front of folks and confess in front of a church, but that is easy compared to getting up every morning and reminding yourself, you don't call the shots. You don't have control of your life. God bought you with a price. You are his. Your purpose in even breathing is to enjoy God forever. It's a totally different way to look at life. To be baptized is to identify with the body of Christ, but to repent is to say, God is God and I am not. So what should happen every Sunday if this Christian message, the first one, three points and a handful of poems is a model for the way that we preach and teach the Bible. Well, every Sunday, we should agree that what the Bible says about God is true. And then we should agree that what the Bible says about me is true. And if we spend enough time in God's Word listening to what it says about Him and what it says about us, a cut heart is an inevitability. The Lord will speak, and we will be cut, and we will be healed, and we will be saved. But in that order, and according to God's rules, His standards, His concept, and I think that's enough for today. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you. For your word, your word through the words of Peter, an example of a message where Peter's talking, but you are speaking. The truth cut hearts as they realized what you had done and what they had done. Lord, would you do that for us today? Would you cut our hearts, cut out the sin, keep cutting until there's nothing left of us? Replace it all with you. Lord, may we remember there's a flaming tongue of fire associated with each of us that have given our heart to you. Lord, may we not grieve that Holy Spirit, but be patient 
Be kind, be faithful, accountable, useful to this kingdom, useful to this church and its ministries for the purpose of getting this message to others. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for yesterday. That felt like two Sundays in a row. And Lord, we ask your blessing on next week where we'll read in this book how you grow a church. And then we'll, we'll look on how you've done it here and thank you for it. Lord, you've been good to us. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.